Hi, and welcome back to the New Book and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall, and I'm your host. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'll be interviewing John Roth and Carol Rittner, editors of the disturbing new volume, Rape, Weapon of War and Genocide, published by Paragon House. Roth and Rittner begin the book by pointing out that while rape has always been part of individual experience of warfare, only recently have states and armies begun to use large-scale rape as a tactic to help them achieve their goals. Accordingly, the study of rape and mass violence is also new. Thus, the book is an exploration of the field more than an effort to offer overarching conclusions. Still, the essays here offer a broad survey of the state of research, as well as issuing an impassioned call for action. John and Carol have the kind of easy familiarity that comes from having worked together for 20 years. The result is more of a conversation than an interview. I threw in some guiding questions, but mostly sat back and enjoyed the chance to hear two experts talk with each other about a subject of pressing importance. I hope you'll appreciate the chance to do the same. So, here's the interview. Hi, John. Hi, Carol. How are you guys doing today? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thanks, Kelly. This is um, a very interesting way to to uh, communicate about our book, and it's great to be able to be in conversation with you and with John. Wonderful. I, I can't say how, how happy I am that you've agreed to do this. For our listeners, uh, today I'm talking with John Roth and Carol Rittner, editors of the really fine new volume titled Rape, Weapon of War and Genocide, published by Paragon. The volume ranges widely, both topically and methodologically, and it's really a wonderful way to acquaint yourself with a wide variety of new research about the topic. Um, so let's start, just uh, if you might, John, by saying something about who you are and how you became interested in genocide studies and the Holocaust. Yes, um, I've been working on the Holocaust and uh, genocide for most of my academic career, uh, I'm now an emeritus professor of philosophy from Claremont McKenna College in California, where I taught for more than 40 years. Um, I got into uh, study of the Holocaust largely from uh, reading that I was doing when I was a young professor. Uh, in particular, I was influenced very heavily by uh, Richard Rubenstein and uh, particularly by Eli Wiesel. And as I read their writings, um, I felt I needed to find out more about the things they were discussing. And so now I describe myself as a philosopher who got tripped up by history. And the history I got tripped up by was basically the history of the Holocaust and then of genocide. And is that your primary interest, or do you supplement that with some other things? Well, I'm right primarily these days uh, and in recent years on on Holocaust studies and genocide studies. I'm particularly interested in the ethical issues and implications of these catastrophes. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Carol? How did you get to be interested in this? Well, I, uh, I, I happen to be a Roman Catholic nun besides being a, a professor of Holocaust and genocide studies. And what uh, really got me interested in this uh, topic of uh, first the Holocaust was as a very young nun, not so young anymore because I've taught for more than 35 years plus, um, but as a very young nun, I read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Recall to Jewish and who survived Auschwitz and and search for meaning. I kept saying to myself, "Well, how? Why didn't Catholic? Why didn't Christians help the Jews to um, evade the Nazi Jews?" And uh, also that uh, because I just there was a. Uh, a terrible side to Christian theology of anti-Judaism in that so-called Christian society of anti-Semitism, um, I began to read more and more and to research more and more, really as a way of answering that question of why didn't Christians help Jews? 
asked. And um, so that, that got me really studying and reading and researching. And then I had the good fortune, uh, much like John did, of um, reading Elie Wiesel's book, Night, which uh, had a very profound influence on me. And then eventually I had the opportunity to work with um, Professor Wiesel, uh, organizing some conferences in uh, Washington, D.C., and then I was uh, for several years the head of the foundation he started after he got the Nobel Peace Prize. And, Hmm. of course, my study of the Holocaust and... Um, all of that. I mean, you can't study about the Holocaust and, of course, not think about today and about what's happening today. So that led me uh, to begin to explore, particularly in the 90s, uh, what was happening in Europe, in former Yugoslavia. There's, um, some people say it was genocide. Some say it was just horrible war crimes and civil war. Um but again, I, I was concerned about uh, the Christian churches and particularly the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, Rwanda in 1994, um, Rwanda, the most Christian, quote unquote, country in all of Africa in terms of its population, and also experienced between April and July of 1994, you know, one of the most vicious uh, events. I mean, the genocide in uh, in 1994 in Rwanda is just horrific. And again, I, you know, I as a believing Christian, as a as I sometimes say to my students, as a professional Christian, because I am a Roman Catholic nun, mm-hmm. I was particularly interested in the churches, the the Christian churches in Rwanda, and in particular the Roman Catholic Church. So this is sort of what got me into studying and writing about the Holocaust and about uh, about genocide. And like John, I'm also interested in the ethical and moral and theological issues that, uh, that these terrible historical events um, precipitate, at least in my mind. And, and you and John have been working either explicitly together or kind of side by side on these things for a while. How did that happen? Well, that's interesting. And uh, I I met John originally in uh, about 1986 when I was working with uh, Ellie Wiesel, and I had this idea for a conference about um, uh, the rescue of Jews uh, during the Holocaust. And the late Harry James Cargus suggested to me that I invite John Roth to come to this conference that uh, Professor Wiesel and I were uh, organizing in Washington, D.C. And so I I met him in 1986. He came to the conference, and I I forget now exactly what his role was, but, um, but, you know, he either gave a paper or or moderated a session or whatever, but then we, we sort of kept in touch. And when he and um, Michael Barenbaum um, published a book um, about what's the exact title of that book, uh, John, that you and Michael published about? Well, it was um, a book that focused on the religious and philosophical implications of the Holocaust. And let, let me pick up the story here sure. just for a minute, Carol, because uh, Michael Barenbaum and I had put together this uh, book of kind of uh, what we regarded as classical texts that um, had emerged by that time. This was around uh, 1990. And uh, when uh, Carol got a copy of the book, I got a phone call from her, and she said to me, where are the women? And uh, her her um, prescient uh, a comment was was correct. The book that uh, Michael Berenbaum and I had done did have one or two um, texts that were written by women, but it was predominantly a, a male voice that was in this volume. And so Carol was wondering, uh, what about the women? And uh, this got us uh, thinking, and Carol, maybe you can pick up the thread again there. Right, right. I, I think, um, I, I mean, I, I later saw there was an essay by Lucy Davidovich in, in, the, in the book that John and Michael Berenbaum did, but 
I said, well, uh, as we talked about women scholars, because I knew there was a lot of significant work being done by women scholars at, at the time that had been published, um, I said to John, maybe there's need for a book about uh, women during the Holocaust. And so we talked about it, and um, and we, in fact, decided to collaborate uh, on a book. And um, and so the book, <coughs> Women During the Holocaust, was published by Paragon House, and it's still in print. I still, mm -hmm. and maybe John does too, I still occasionally get emails from people, or I meet them at a conference, and they say, oh, that book really... Change the direction for me and of the what I teach and how I teach and so it was uh, our intention in in publishing the book about women during the Holocaust was to draw attention to the fact that the the predominant voices or at least the ones that seemed to be predominant at the time were those of men and and I mean really important. Voices, Wiesel and Berenbaum and Roth and Rubenstein and um, all sorts of, of, of Yehuda Bauer, you know, very significant, important scholars. But there also are important um, female scholars and and memoirs also by women. Everybody knew um, Elie Wiesel's book Night, but not very many people knew Auschwitz and After. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm blanking now on the the name of the author, the French woman. Um, John, you might know Charlotte Delbo. I'm sure, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. Charlotte Delbo. Um, you know, and so we wanted to draw attention to them, and that that's what was the origin of our working together on some publishing projects. Kelly, so, there's a, a connection yeah. between uh, the early book that uh, Carol and I did and the volume on uh, rape that we're focusing about. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll maybe try to say mm -hmm. just a word about that. Uh, we had noticed uh, that in the um, in the scholarship and in the testimonies by by women, there occasionally were allusions to what we could call sexual violence. Uh, mm -hmm. during the Holocaust. But this was uh, not something that was much talked about. In fact, it could be argued that it was kind of a taboo subject, just as was the case originally about the uh, attempt to uh, bring gender considerations and a focus on women into the mainstream of Holocaust studies. That, mm -hmm. that was not the case uh, 25 years ago, that there was a focus on, on these kinds of topics. Today, it, it is a central focus. I just came back uh, a couple of months ago from an important conference at the University of Southern California that was focused entirely on uh, mm -hmm. sexual violence against women during the Holocaust. This is a, a topic uh, that was advanced very much by a book uh, recently published by Sonia Hedgepath and Rochelle Seidel. And so this, is, this topic is getting into the mainstream more and more. But what happened uh, to me, at least, and I think Carol uh, nudged me into this, uh, was we became aware, especially with the uh, violence that was taking place in the former Yugoslavia mm -hmm. and in Rwanda in the 1990s, that uh, sexual violence and rape in particular were being used as... Uh, as strategies and as uh, policies even to uh, perpetrate genocide. Uh, th this and, was the uh, thing we were thinking about. This, this hadn't been uh, codified. It hadn't been criminalized right. in international law yet, but we were becoming aware of this. Well, this remained latent for a time, but then as things escalated and we began to see what was happening in Darfur and then in the Democratic Republic of, the, of Congo in the mm -hmm. um, middle years of the, of the 21st century, in the first decade of the 21st century, uh, Carol, and here I'll put the ball back in her court, got an idea for another book, and that's the one that we're focused on uh, today. Right. And the other thing that I would I would just say is that um, if I could put it this way, rape has been around for a long time, and it's been around for a long time in war. Mm -hmm. And um, it, you know, unfortunately, probably from the beginning of wars, uh, you know, women have suffered um, and have been 
sexually abused, raped, etc. But and even in terms of World War II and and the Holocaust, it was almost um, it was more like a, it was a, a prize of war. Do you know, like. Um, it wasn't, as John said, it wasn't a strategy. But what we began to see in former Yugoslavia and Rwanda is this notion of, because they're such highly patriarchal societies and children take their ethnicity from the father, that if a mother is of one ethnic background, let's say in former Yugoslavia, the mother is um, is a Bosnian Muslim, but is raped and impregnated by a Bosnian Serb. The ethnicity is Serb. Uh, the child who is born is a Serb. In mm-hmm. Rwanda, if, a, if a, a, a member of the Tutsi ethnic um, tribe is impregnated by a, a, a male of the Hutu ethnic tribe, the child's ethnic background was considered Hutu. And um, what really drew my attention to all of this, I mean, you know, you sort of think about rape as a, as a, as a danger, but Roy Gutman, who was um, a who is a journalist and mm-hmm. was in uh, former Yugoslavia, um, he was the first, or at least the, the, I, I don't know that he claims, but I've read that he was the first journalist to draw attention to this use by um, Serb soldiers of rape as a weapon. Now, don't misunderstand me. Across the board in former Yugoslavia, whether you were Croatian or Serbian or uh, Bosnian Muslim, I want to say rape was across the board. But the Serbs, the Serb perpetrators against the Bosnian Muslims and Muslim women in particular, uh, the, uh, when women were were telling what happened to the Bosnian Muslim women were telling what happened to them during they and sort of you know un um, allied with a, another survivor of rape. I mean, in one place and in another place and another place, they would tell, and they would tell that that these Serb soldiers who were paramilitaries who rape them literally were saying like now you will you will have a serb you will you will make serb babies and so it began and this is has like implications not only for the destruction of a woman and her most precious being but also has implications for society and for um the, the ethnic group and for dis- destroying I mean, as we know, the U.N. definition for genocide is very specific. And one is, you know, to destroy in whole or in part an ethnical, an ethnic, U.N. language is ethnical, an Mm -hmm. ethnic uh, group. And so this whole thing about about rape being used as a weapon in former Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia and in Rwanda, and I said to John, I said, John, you know, I think I can get a small amount of money. Uh, there's a there's a fund that uh, I have some access to at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, where I'm on the board of trustees. Uh, hmm. And I said, it's not a lot of money, but let's think about having a seminar and inviting people to come to the seminar, you know, maybe 12 to 15 people, scholars to the seminar, and present papers about um, about rape being used as a weapon and uh, of war and genocide. And John, maybe you can pick up about the idea of why we had these orienting documents uh, which yes, uh, when we gathered uh, together our group, and uh, the group formed partly be because of uh, people that Carol and I knew, and then also a little bit by word of mouth, uh, as we contacted one scholar or one colleague, and we said, "Who else do you know who might be interested in this?" Pretty soon, we had a group of about a dozen or. More 
more. And uh, we convened and began to think uh, right away not only about the uh, papers that we had brought to share, but about a book. And our idea was that uh, we wanted to produce a, a book that would have a number of features about it. One would be that uh, while it was going to be focused on rape as a weapon of war and genocide, the title of the book, uh, we needed to have uh, uh, expertise and, and uh, scholarship that could deal with uh, a number of different places where this problem has existed in the world. And I think that's one of the, the things that uh, was driven home to us as we worked on this, on this project. The, the issue of uh, rape as policy um, is something that has been the early 21st century, by now it's become widespread. There have been many, many places, uh, regions of the world where in one way or another, uh, sexual violence, uh, rape in particular, has been used as, a, as an instrument of policy to, to obtain objectives that, that uh, political groups, often uh, governmental groups, uh, want to achieve. So we had to have a group of scholars who could give uh, some coverage to the global uh, character of this uh, problem, and we then also wanted to uh, uh, form the book so that it would have uh, the following kind of audience. We wanted it to be accessible to general readers, but we also wanted it to be something that could be used in uh, classrooms with college and university mm -hmm. students. And we thought that one way to uh, advance that goal would be to organize each chapter so that the author uh, had selected some kind of a document that they thought was, was an important thing for a reader to know about. The document could be, for example, um, part of an oral testimony, or it might be uh, a part of a trial transcript script, or it might be uh, an excerpt from a United Nations document that had taken up uh, issues that were concerned with human rights and, and with, uh, with genocide. And then the idea was uh, each writer would select a document and then uh, present that document, contextualize it, and reflect on it in a chapter that would be of, of uh, moderate length. Uh, and then included in the chapter, there would be other resources, discussion questions, there would be um, a bibliography, and Carol and I committed ourselves to including uh, a, a, what, what turns out to be a substantial list of uh, websites, internet resources that uh, shed further light on this topic and also give uh, students and readers an opportunity to see that there are things that people, ordinary people, can do to uh, protest, perhaps to intervene, to uh, raise awareness, and to help in some ways to call attention to this uh, problem that we face and maybe to do something about it to curb it. And so, so that was also... the thrust of the book. The, the, the other thing that, that we did, and which we've done in um, several other books that we've worked on together, is we put a timeline in. We wanted to, and of course, you know, any timeline, wherever you started, it's sort of an arbitrary decision. But, and I believe we decided to start our timeline uh, with the rape of Nanking in the 1930s. I mean, we could have started earlier, we could have chosen beginning of the 20th century and started with the Armenian genocide, for example, or the Hutu, not the Hutus, the Herreros in uh, Southwest Africa. But we chose to start at the rape of Nanking because it's such a horrific event. And in fact, that historical event is known to us as the rape of Nanking because of what mm -hmm. Japanese soldiers who went amok did to Chinese civilians and Chinese soldiers in Nanking, which was the, the wartime capital of, of China. And, and of course, any timeline, it's selective. I'm sure some people will read the timeline and say, well, why isn't X, X in there? But we, you know, we did our best. We, we, we researched various books and we tried to check against things and to draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, this is not just something 
uh, that just began in 
uh, carrying out that policy. Uh, one of the scholars in uh, in the book is um, uh, James Waller, who for a long time has been interested in the question of how do you how do you get people to uh, commit mass atrocities, to commit mass murder. He's a he's a social psychologist, and uh, Jim Waller in his chat in this book uh, takes his methodology and, and tries to apply it to uh, the question of how people are uh, brought into a, a network of uh, power relations that uh, leads them to participate in uh, the implementation of rapist policy. So it, it, this is something we're still uh, struggling to understand. But there is a, a lateness about all of this that is, is rather uh, important and interesting. It's, it's only in the late 1990s, in, in a case mm -hmm. coming out of the Rwandan genocide that uh, indicted a man of the name of Jean-Paul Akiyesu, that we get um, an instance where rape is um, codified as being uh, a, a genocidal act. That is, that rape can be an act of genocide. So this comes late in the day. Uh, one of the tragedies here is that the perpetrators of these atrocities are out in front and out ahead of international law. The international law is in a kind of catch-up mode. So it's only fairly recently now that we have um, international law established in a way that can make it clear that a person uh, can be uh, indicted for and found guilty of uh, genocide. One of the acts that is genocidal is that of rape. And it's even fairly recently that uh, rape itself has been uh, defined in international law. Uh, in the book, we uh, we understand that uh, there there are different ways to understand what rape involves, and these have evolved in uh, in different uh, legal proceedings. But as a kind of uh, point of departure in the book, the way in which uh, the, the contributors have thought about rape would fit with the way in which it was uh, defined in. Uh, the deliberations of the criminal tribunal for Rwanda, which uh, defined rape. This is again in the in the late 1990s. Uh, that chamber defined rape as a physical invasion of a sexual nature committed on a person under circumstances which are coercive. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, that's how we have thought of this concept and. Mm -hmm. Uh, what what we're struggling with, I think, and when I say we, it's not just uh, scholars, but uh, in international law and in uh, cases where there's our efforts to try to intervene and to um, uh, protect people from these crimes, which can, by the way, be uh, uh, crimes that affect men as well as women. We find that there are instances where uh, rape of men is taking place as uh, mm -hmm. as as policy too so uh anyway we we tried to um uh develop a, a way of thinking about this uh tragedy this this crime in a way that uh was consonant with the way in which it had been uh defined in the uh deliberations of the criminal tribunal for rwanda although i i i think if i i could be mistaken here but if i'm not mistaken dagmar herzog who is the well-known German historian mm -hmm. who has an essay in our book about uh, men during um, the Holocaust and about gays who were German men who were terribly abused. And I, I, I think she's really talking about, um, like, rape, to my way of thinking, and I think the way as some scholars and commentators refer, rape is kind of sexual violence, but sexual violence, it includes rape, but goes beyond rape, um, you know, sexual torture, etc. I mean, in her, mm -hmm. her essay is really about sexual torture of a man. And um, so I, I think, you know, so we're, we're sort of limited um, 
or are we limited to a, a certain extent, you know, the, the focus of this book? It's not about all kinds of sexual violence, which are also horrific, but it's about a form of sexual violence, rape. You know, the, the one thing I want to say, though, about this thing about um, international law and holding people accountable. I mean, to me, that's what is so horribly discouraging. Um, we can mention one or two cases that have come before the criminal tribunals of uh, former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. But really, rape as a weapon, I mean, there's like a, a culture of impunity. There is, an, and this I think is even uh, more discouraging and more shocking and more uh, angering to me, it, it, it's not, I mean, women have to be seen, well, it's, it's my little essay that I have, is that, which plays off of uh, Catherine McKinnon's uh, mm -hmm. orienting document, Are Women Human? I mean, I think that's a real question. I, I think there are parts of the world, and I'll, let's just take uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where women are property. Um and they're the property of men. And um, and it isn't always like I, I said that I was correcting papers before we got involved in this conversation. And I have a graduate student who just wrote a paper for me, an excellent paper on the motivations of perpetrators of rape in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sure. And um you know, it there, at least in, in terms of what he writes about, um, it isn't so much that that rape is used as a weapon as it's used as uh, a way for men who are uh, who don't get paid by the they're, they're in the, uh, the army of the government of the DRC. They, they don't get wages. They're poor. They're starving. They don't have proper equipment. They wake up hungry. They wake up angry. Uh, and they want something. And they take it from women. And they think they have a right. It isn't so much, a, if I could say, a crime of lust as it is a, I have a right to this. Uh, mm -hmm. My government's not giving me what, but I can take this. And this being, I can take a woman and do with her as I wish. And when you start talking about 20 and 30 and 40,000 women having been raped, I mean, the question for me is, how do you ever have any kind of justice to hold, and I'll say these men, because it's men. How do you hold these men accountable? How do you punish them? How do you have any kind of justice for uh, for the victims? Um, to me, as a woman, um, you know, it's shocking and um, and it's discouraging. Um, I think yeah. uh, uh, Kelly Carroll's right. Um, she and I have worked on uh, dark topics for a long, long time, and in my case at least uh, nothing I've uh, worked on uh, as a writer or teacher or scholar has uh, has seemed to me more uh, uh, discouraging in some ways than the uh, investigations that are reflected uh, in this in this book on on rape but I, I would have to say that uh, there there are also uh, things that we found in our research and study that uh, can give uh, give at least glimpses of, of hope. Uh, one of them is the amazing uh, resilience of many of the uh, women who have suffered uh, this abuse in cases uh, that have been genocidal. Those Many do not survive it at all, of course, but among those who have survived, uh, the courage of these uh, women to uh, to organize, to testify, and the, the testimony that they give comes at huge 
ice because it requires them mm-hmm. to relive uh, what they've been through, and also it does not give them necessarily credit within their their own societies where they are upon as uh, people who are are tainted or who have uh, you know questionable legacies going forward. But uh, their examples, their courage, uh, plus the fact that uh, in the book we try to locate, as was mentioned earlier, um, things that people can do to uh, to step forward, to call attention. One of my heroes in this uh, uh, area is the uh, New York Times op-ed writer Nicholas Kristof, who has mm-hmm. uh, for several years been kind of leading voice in calling attention to uh, rape as a as an instrument of war and genocide, and uh, this has been uh, for me a, a, a fine example that uh, I think shows how people can use the influence and the leverage that they have to uh, do some good in the world. And all of us have a little bit of influence and a little bit of power, and we have to watch for ways in which we can can do that. And I want to just say uh, for myself, uh, it's been very important to me personally to be involved in this particular book project as the man. I think that uh, sometimes there's, there, there is an impression that uh, this is just an issue that's of concern to women, but uh, it's really much, much bigger than that. And uh, part of the... Uh, change that has to take place if uh, rape is not to be continually used as a weapon of war and genocide is a a change in cultural attitudes. I think Carol was alluding to some of this in her comments a moment ago. A change in in attitudes that that, uh, reflect primarily on men about how, uh, how we think about the humanity of women. That's how I'd put it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I certainly agree with um, with John. I mean, it, it is amazing to see the resilience uh, of these women, and uh, you know, I mean, if I didn't see some sparks of light, I wouldn't be able to do this work at all. But I still go back to this thing of. Uh, you know, until men, and, you know, John, as John said, it's important for him as a man. I mean, we women aren't going to be able to change how men look at us. I mean, men are going to have to deal with that with each other. Um, but, as, you know, I, but let me just say another thing. I think if it's, um, is it uh, Leanne DeRuth who talks about, she talks about, um, I believe in her essay about the role of, or she, she makes a, 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 tries to make a case for uh, uh, saying about the role of uh, the churches, mm-hmm. the church probably, the Roman Catholic Church in particular, and its view about women and how this may have influenced subtly. Um, you know, uh, uh, the views of of men in some parts of the world toward women. One of the things that I believe needs to be done um, is, and and this is something that shocked me enormously. In fact, I have an essay or two about this, but it's about the silence of the churches, the Christian churches, and in particular the Roman Catholic Church in the early 90s, about what was happening to women in uh, former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda, and what, you know, what men were doing to women in terms of raping them. Um, There is a letter that came from um, Pope John Paul II to... I believe it's the Archbishop of Sarajevo. We don't have this. We may have it in the timeline, but we, we don't have an essay in the book about this. But um, the letter to the Archbishop is commenting on on the uh, the number of women who have been raped and impregnated, and the letter is a plea by the Pope 
to the Archbishop and through him to the women of former Yugoslavia not to have abortions. Now, I'm not for abortion. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, I'm, I'm not advocating abortion. But there wasn't one word in this letter about the men who committed these rapes. It was all about the women bringing allowing pregnancies to come to term and giving birth. Hmm. The child heard about the complexity of the feelings that a woman must have about giving birth to a child who is conceived under such horrific circumstances. Um, that to me is very troubling. Um, and it's troubling to me that the, in particular, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't seem at its highest levels and medium levels, you know, bishops and archbishops and all the rest of them, that we don't get any pastoral help uh, with, with these kinds of issues or any outright condemnation of, uh, of the men who commit these horrific crimes. Um, you know, the, the Vatican will condemn, and I use that word advisedly, People who talk about the ordination of women, and in mm -hmm. fact, they, ex uh, they well, they threw out of a religious order, Ray Bourgeois, out of the Marinals just recently, for participating in the ordination of a woman. There was no talk in uh, Rwanda when Pope John Paul II sent his envoy, um, Archbishop Jadot, to Rwanda to say that the men who have committed these horrific crimes against women are excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And there were a lot of baptized Catholics uh, in Rwanda who were Hutu who committed these horrific crimes, including some priests. There was no talk in former Yugoslavia of excommunicating uh, Catholic Serbs or Croatians or Bosnians who committed rape against women whatever ethnic group they were. I find that troubling. I find that silence troubling. And um, I guess that's all I'll say about it at this point. Yeah. If I'm, one of the things that struck me reading a, a number of these essays is, is the way in which rape or the consequences of rape live on in ways that are different and possibly more substantial than uh, than those of of, of of deaths, right? And I don't mean to suggest, mm -hmm. uh, John, you write an essay in your essay. You talk about how the dead speak in certain kind of ways, um, but the consequences of rape are, are different. And I wonder if, if if and maybe you can start, John, if you can talk a little bit about about that, about how the impact of rape shapes societies and peoples well after the conflict is done? Yes, well, it, it lingers on in uh, multiple ways. I would say, uh, I would say uh, uh, three ways come to mind, at least. Uh, among those who uh, survive these atrocities, the, uh, the memory uh, is there, and it has to do with... Um, senses of identity, it has to do with senses of worth, um, it has to do with um, how, they, how they see their, uh, their future, these women, and it has to do with uh, ongoing uh, physical problems that uh, these women encounter, medical issues they encounter. The, the uh, rape that is, is used as an instrument of war and genocide is so brutal that for um, women who survive it, they, they may have lifelong physical uh, problems that they have to deal with. And we're still in the process of having to uh, figure out in some cases what the surgical and medical uh, procedures need to be in order to care for these women. Uh, and many of them do not have uh, adequate care uh, medically or or psychologically. This this is a, a big 
area of need. So the first area is the the ongoing impact of this violence on the people who have suffered it. Then uh, a second area, uh, Carol mentioned, and this is related to the first, I think all these things are, are interrelated, is that uh, by intention, very often, these uh, rapes are intended to produce pregnancies. And mm-hmm. the uh, intention behind that is that the children that will be born from these encounters uh, will will not only be, um, how should we describe it, they, they will not have a clear sense of identity. Uh, their mothers will be conflicted about them. Um, and so in, in the next generation, you have the uh, after effect of, of rape uh, car- carrying on. The third area is, and then this is where the, the genocide uh, comes, comes to the fore. It's connected with the other two cases or instances that I pointed out too. But the, uh, the use of rape as policy has a destructive effect on the social fabric, on the communities mm-hmm. of, the, of the women uh, and, and now in some cases the men too who are victimized by the, by the perpetrators of this. It, 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 it causes uh, ripple effects that uh, uh, affect the the fabric of uh, a community's life, uh, its its self understanding, and even its uh, future. And so, in those three ways, uh, the impact on the individual who suffers it, the uh, generational qualities of it that may be carried on through uh, pregnancies and births or or aborted birth, the effect of that, and then uh, thirdly, in this larger sense of how a uh, community's life and self-understanding is affected by uh, by these acts of violence. Yeah, I remember. I, I, I think used also, a, you know. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was just going to no, say, go ahead. Uh, it, um, and and you you also talked about this, but you know, the children left behind. You know, uh, some of whom are raised by uh, the mothers who have uh, who gave birth to these unwanted uh, children under such horrific circumstances, and do the best they can. But every time they look at the child, they're reminded of what what happened to them. So how you know, and and uh, you know, we we learn so much, or we're learning more and more about what happens to a child in utero when, you know, it knows, quote, unquote, whether it's wanted or unwanted. Um, and, uh, you know, how this will affect even the future of the country. I mean, if, when you have large numbers, I'm not saying millions, but even if there are thousands of children who are the result of such uh, horrific impregnations and births. Um, how does that affect even the, the very future of a country? And and then the whole um, the justice system, which I just I can't understand how there can be any kind of adequate punishment or justice for uh, men who have committed. Uh, these horrific crimes. So what does that do to the whole justice system and confidence that people have in in government? And um, it, it's just, it, it is, as John said, all of this stuff is interconnected. And it seems to me, and I, I don't know, I'm just speculating here, but it seems to me there's probably always this um, unspoken trauma that lurks under the surface of everything, conversations, social family life, school life, a child's life, a woman's life. It's just always lurking there. And, and um, you know, to use a, a cliche, it's got to come out somewhere. It's if it doesn't come out directly. The, the anger, the, the depression... I, I think it's a very complicated and 
I also think it's complicated. A lot of this gets complicated as well. And, and again, we, we don't really get into this in the book, but think about these conflict areas of the world where it isn't the perpetrators of genocide who are committing the, this horrific rape, but sometimes it's the peacekeepers who are mm-hmm. to, to keep the peace, um, are, including our own soldiers you know, from the West. Um, it's very, very complicated. And, um, and, and it's true. We do have suggestions about what we can do. And, of course, none of us is the Messiah, so we, we simply do the best we can do to try to, like the little Dutch boy who put this finger <laughs> in the hole in the dike, we try to hold the water back so it don't come crashing over us. Yeah, what, one of the things I was really, one of the things about this book, the, the commonalities in the essays is the sense in which one of the Linger, one of the reasons that the experience of rape lingers the way it does is the sense in which societies often blame the women themselves for being raped, mm-hmm. or at least for mm-hmm. not avoiding that. Uh, and, and, you know, there's this, this phrase that's been around in Holocaust studies for a while about choiceless choices that what? choiceless mm-hmm. choices, I'm sorry, that one of your, your authors uses. Um, and I'm wondering, do you have – this is partly specifically addressed at that and partly addressed at some of your broader conflict co- comments. Are you hopeful when you look at this, the way the discussion is going that that there will be the possibility of, 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 of changing this? John, maybe you well, want to I'll have start that here. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll start, Kelly. Carol, I'm sure will add. Uh, um, I think hopeful is uh, too strong a word to use, but um, I I take some inspiration from uh, from uh, two of the sources that kind of uh, have nurtured me along this long path I've been on of, of studying mass atrocities. Uh, um, I, I take some encouragement from the philosopher Albert Camus and his notion mm-hmm. of uh, resistance. That uh, that that even though that you you may not have um, great hope that you can solve and correct this problem, there is something that is going on here that is so fundamentally wrong that you cannot be fully human unless find some way to resist it. Mm-hmm. So that that's one point that, that I feel pretty strongly, and and the second one I, I from uh, from Elie Wiesel, and uh, he he has taught me that uh, despair is not the ending; it's the beginning. That is that you you uh, as long as you have breath and life, uh, you may have every reason to uh, to be despairing about a situation. You still have to decide what to do with your despair, and there are various things you can do with it. One is you can uh, take that too as uh, not the end point, but as the beginning. So, uh, and I feel this very strongly as a man. I would say going going back to a point we discussed earlier. As I've worked on this book, uh, I know I can't solve or. Uh, stop this problem by myself, but mm-hmm. uh, I can I can do something about it. Uh, if it's only in my in my local situation, in the way in which I uh, speak and and talk and act, and so these are small things, but uh, but they aren't unimportant. Even even small things are very important. It turns out, and they may lead to to larger things. So uh, there was nothing in working on this project that uh, made me feel uh, uplifted or made me feel um, that we were really getting uh, to a solution about this. But uh, I saw in the in the work that I did on this the uh, the absolute urgency and importance of refusing to give up and uh, trying to do as much as we can to resist and to protest and to 
um, energize whatever powers we can mobilize to um, to act in ways that might curb this violence. I, I can only say uh, amen to what, what John <laughs> says. I mean, uh, I'm still teaching, and, uh, you know, I believe that I, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm not willing to despair about this. I, I don't think we're going to solve a problem. I think this this is an issue that is, I mean, it, it's enormous. It has something to do with human nature and with um, the, the question of evil in the world and, um, you know, how we try to try to deal with that. But, you know, what I try to do, I, I try to, to teach my students to get them to think about some of these issues and questions, perhaps in a way that they hadn't thought about them before. I mean, that was the whole point of uh, the little essay that I wrote when I asked uh, mm -hmm. students in class, are women human? And, um, you know, it's like, are you joking? Well, of course women are human. And then, and, 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 I, and you could see it. So I was, as I sort of went through this class this particular day a few years ago, you could see particularly the young men in the class, but also the women, uh, you know, starting to think about it. Oh, well, I never thought about that, or I never thought about that in this way. So I'm with John. I mean, we do what we can. I'm not willing to despair. I, I see our book as a contribution to getting uh, students, teachers, the general reader, maybe even people in government, maybe even uh, persons in, interested in international law or um, at the UN. Um, I mean, we're going to try to get our book in the bookstore at the UN at the time mm -hmm. of the Commission on the Status of Women to get people thinking about these issues and it's and not just saying well you know it's very unfortunate that these things happen to women but you know well war is war and um so i, I you know i think we don't move with bulldozers but you know we just sort of move with little small tiny steps uh confident that um you know we're doing our part to to try to get people to think and reflect, and then to act in a, in a way that's for human beings and for humanity, and not destructive of uh, of humanity. Whether whether those we are trying to encourage to think are students or clergy or bishops or popes or scholars or military people, to get them to think and uh, and to reflect and to do what they can do in their areas. That's a, a wonderful way to perhaps conclude. We've taken up a lot of your time. I just really quickly would say, I think one of the real benefits to the, the book that you've edited is in fact the way it points out that war isn't war and that this is something new in terms of how governments and peoples mm -hmm. approach it. Um, and of course, if it's relatively new, perhaps we can work toward making sure it doesn't have a long life. I do have one last question. Um, what are you all working on now? Mm. Well, I, I can, <laughs> um, well, I, I'm working on something that is totally unrelated to this, um, and and that's that's a film uh, that's almost finished uh, about nuns. And uh, I, I have to say, I just just had a meeting about it in Seoul. I, I was, met with the filmmaker the yesterday, and it's very moving um, film. And um, so I'm working on that. And um, I I would like to work on a book about. Uh, I'd like to to do a book that would be a a, a textbook um, about genocide. Um, and and that could be used at the if, with college and university students. So those are two things I'm working on mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, you, John? I, yeah, two things. Um, I've just published a volume that uh, 
again, is a, um, a group effort. It's called uh, Encountering the Stranger, and it's a uh, trialogue, we're calling it, um, that involves Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And uh, this is a, a volume uh, where quite a bit of the work was done uh, at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and the uh, project was to see uh, how interreligious uh, discussions might be affected if uh, the participants used the Holocaust as a kind of touchstone, um, the Holocaust in this case being an instance of um, a catastrophe that uh, took place in part because uh, a religious a religious tradition ran amok. In this case, uh, my own Christian tradition, and uh, ran amok in in its uh, relationships to um, the Jews and to the Jewish tradition. Um, and so we uh, we brought a group of uh, of uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians together at the museum and in other places too to uh, reflect on. Uh, religious violence on um, questions about hospitality from uh, one side to another uh, and to see how um, paying some attention to the history of the Holocaust might influence and affect uh, how these uh, religious traditions engage with each other and, and interact with one another. Then the uh, second project I'm working on has a, a, a close connection to the project on rape. Um, I'm working on a volume of torture, oh, and uh, one one of the things that uh, that we know is that uh, rape, uh, among other things, is uh, is torture, and mm -hmm. is used as such. Uh, so there's a connection there between the project that we've been discussing today and one of the things that I'm working on presently. Hmm. I look forward to reading those. They sound wonderful. And I hope down the line, if we get a chance, you'll be on the program again. And I just want to say thanks so much. This has been a fascinating interview. Um, and I know our listeners really appreciate it. And thanks for your time. Thank you thanks very much. Thanks to you, much. Kelly. It's been very All right. interesting for us, yep. too. Thanks. Wonderful. All right. Thanks so much. Take okay. care. Right. You, too. Bye-bye now. All right. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with John Roth and Carol Rittner, editors of the book Rape weapon of war and genocide. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll return to listen to more interviews on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. Until next time, thanks for listening.